Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Williams and you're listening to Know Your Own Psychology. After many years building a successful career as a psychologist, I finally realised that it didn't reflect the autonomy and freedom I wanted in both my life and work. As I made plans to begin working for myself, my husband died suddenly and my whole world fell apart. But with a young family to look after and big dreams I did not want to give up on, I took some time and in the middle of the global pandemic, I left my old life behind. Today, I'm a private psychologist, digital course creator, mum to five and best-selling author. My mission is to simplify psychological ideas so that you can know your own psychology, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose. Are you ready to be empowered? This is Know Your Own Psychology, the podcast. Today in the podcast, I'm talking to Stephanie Milne. Steph is a women's health physiotherapist who earlier this month opened her own private clinic to support women in West Lothian and beyond. She specialises in pre and postnatal care of women, offers menopause support, along with all things continence, prolapse and pelvic related. She's a certified mummy MOT practitioner and offers fully comprehensive postnatal checks. Steph is married to Ross and has three children of her own. But that's not all. In recent years, Steph has experienced a number of difficult life events related to her own health, fertility and children. This has been challenging and ultimately led her onto the path she's on today. We're about to dive deep into issues around infertility, choice in how we birth our babies and how trauma can build up over time without us even noticing. I know this episode is going to land for so many women and I'm excited to hear what you think. Oh, and I should also say, she's my best pal. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Steph. How are you feeling? Hello. I'm good. Good, thank you. Good. So... I wanted to just explain a little bit um, for the listeners because I feel like this is going to be just slightly different in terms of the (laughs) (laughs) because you and I know each other so well and yeah we've been best friends for a very long time and so I feel like there's likely to be like a level of familiarity that might be a little bit different because of that and I guess I'm hoping that what that does is give a little bit more depth, I guess, to the things that we'll be speaking about. And we're going to be talking about lots of things today. Uh-huh. And I also wanted to support you in your new business at the Physio Village, which opened earlier this month. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so yeah, let's dive in. We're going to be covering things like our experiences of becoming mums. And in that, we'll talk about secondary infertility, we're going to talk about your IVF journey, birth trauma, and more. But the place I want to start is with vulnerability. And <laughs> because I know you so well, <laughs> I felt this question was really important because I'm not sure even a couple of years ago, you would have been as willing to kind of talk about some of the stuff that we're about to cover. So let me dive in with the first question. And that was to say, what would you say about how easy you find it to be vulnerable 
and has this changed as you've gotten older and as you've experienced a bit more? I think I would definitely agree with you on that. Um, three years ago, you would never have got me on a podcast full stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say as I've gotten older, it has got much easier um, to be, be vulnerable. And probably because my understanding and awareness of my own psychology has grown. Yeah. Um, I don't think I could have done that without help, though. Yeah. And the way the journey that I've kind of been on. Yeah. And it's definitely taken gosh many years of kind of shutting the door on lots of I don't like to call them micro or mini traumas but like like lots of episodes to have got to the point where I am um yeah I I suppose as you well know one of my favorite phrases is probably I'm fine I'm fine yeah absolutely absolutely Um, and, you know, I remember my mum saying to me once, she said, I don't like not video calling you. She says, because you can't hide, she says, you can hide your um, emotion in your voice. She says, but you can't hide it through your face. Oh. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I like that, like, you're you're talking about this idea of, like, um, over the years, there's been different episodes of trauma, and we're going to come on and talk about that. Yeah. But, yeah, so you've, as you've gotten older and experienced a bit more, there's a sense that you're, you've, been able to be more vulnerable and yeah, you've yeah. learned about that and, and grown through that process yeah I think um I never really understood before why I wasn't comfortable stepping outside my comfort zone mm-hmm. and I think it was ultimately because my level of I suppose anxiety made me to feel too um, vulnerable to then put that vulnerability on top of it again yeah sure no that makes sense that makes sense Okay, so I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you're in a place to feel um, safe enough to be vulnerable with me today um, and be sharing that with others because I think you've got a really important story to tell and obviously with opening your new business at the Physio Village, I think there'll be lots of women out there who relate to your story, who relate to some of my birth story because I'm going to talk a little bit about that and get your reflections on me, which I think is really nice as a wee turntable. Um, Okay, so front and center of what we're talking about is pregnancy and I guess the ups and downs and the trauma that some people experience as they become a mum or try to become a mum and I genuinely don't think this is something that's spoken about enough and so I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your first pregnancy (laughs) and what happened after you had your first baby in 2012. Um, yeah, so I had an eventful pregnancy and delivery um, back in 2012. <laughs> um, we were living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And at 31 weeks, I went into preterm labour um, on my own at home. <laughs> um, my husband was three and a half hours away <laughs> with work. And I thought, right, well, I, so I drove myself to the hospital. Uh, with my contractions three minutes apart, oh. apart um, <laughs> and I got stuck in the lift in the multi-storey car park and on my own in the dark you know it was very eventful um, but you know eventually got into the hospital and they gave me medication to stop it which that in itself was an experience um, wasn't particularly pleasant uh, they sent me home and less than 12 hours later, I was back again with more contractions and I stayed in hospital on bed rest uh, for the next six weeks. Yeah. Um, 
it was in intense pain over that time and I think that was part of the, the problem really um, there was no cause no one could identify why I was in so much pain um, and it was actually it was four years later before I actually found out what had caused it and I'd actually suffered a leaking dermoid cyst yeah. um, which unfortunately left me with secondary infertility um, which I know we'll come on to later um, so I was eventually induced just after my due date um, I had a three day stalled labour at home and mm-hmm. there was big concerns over baby's movement um, it was a very intense induction ended up in a one-tooth delivery with the baby in distress I was, and he was rushed to the NICU and I was hemorrhaging gosh just so much yeah, yeah it was a lot um, Cameron spent four days in the NICU having his blood sugar stabilised and on antibiotics for meconium aspiration and I left the hospital without my baby yeah which was one of the hardest things at that well, at that point was one of the hardest things I'd ever done yeah. and I have so much respect for NICU mums and dads um, who do that for months and months and months at a time yeah. um, and NICU obviously you were in Dallas at the time NICU um, refers to is the neonatal intensive care unit yeah so it's a bit different obviously um, in the states but yeah like I remember that time and just being so worried about you going into mm-hmm. such early labor and then my, my sort of memories of that time when you were on bed rest was that you were kind of making lots of jokes about it but actually like it was a really difficult time for you uh-huh. there was periods when I remember waking up one morning and actually the nurse coming in and saying how are you today and I said oh, not great actually I'm, I'm actually in so much I really need the toilet but I'm in so much pain I don't feel like I can move and she said right okay well that's not normal and the pain had just escalated so much that I ended up it was all quite fast but I ended up with like a general surgeon in within an hour and they're talking me through about doing like emergency surgery and potential cesareans and and asking me what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and that was really stressful they were very much putting it on me mm-hmm. and yeah it was it wasn't pleasant at all Mm, it's interesting because I'm about to come in and talk about my birth story and I felt very different that I didn't really get much choice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're saying you were kind of given it and obviously you mentioned coming home without baby yeah. uh, I'm just kind of saying how difficult that was when when did Cameron finally come home what was the time scale on that it was only four days um so I was discharged because my because it had been a natural well um a, vaginal delivery I was just discharged after I think it's I think it's 24 hours in Texas mm-hmm. um, and he was in for four days mm-hmm. so it wasn't long but it was that feeling of leaving yeah. that was horrible yeah. absolutely and do you know something I don't think I'd actually ever really obviously I knew that you had a dermoid cyst and that you found mm-hmm. out I didn't know that that's what was causal of the secondary infertility Yes, they think that it was it was all happened in lots of bits and pieces. So I had had a surgery about three years after Cameron was born and they'd said I had endometriosis. And um, they then uh, then went in for excision surgery to deal with endometriosis. And the consultant said, this isn't endometriosis. So um, 
but your organs are all stuck together. My ovary was wrapped up in my bowel. And by the time he'd finished excising it and separating everything together, I'd lost a third of one of my ovaries and a fallopian tube on the left. But they do believe that that happened at the point I was pregnant. And that was what the pain was from. And that's what the pain was and what caused it all. And I mean, look, we're going to we're gonna go, come on and talk a little bit more about the secondary infertility part of it. But I'm just already struck by how psychologically difficult it is. First of all, like, I guess for you going through like the, you know, the 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 worry about the baby the worry about what's going on with your body and the pain and all that kind of stuff and like did you get any psychological support at that time no and your story I think is fairly typical of many first-time mums whether they end up with surgical stuff or or whatever like Mm -hmm. you know I hear so many stories about mums coming out the other end of their pregnancy and just being really um traumatized by what they've been through um, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. and actually okay so let me let me just turn the tables for a second um mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask you to reflect a little bit on what you observed of my birth experience because almost exactly a year to the day when you had Cameron I had then my first daughter Ella and I had an incredibly long labor um with some pretty difficult complications that had been in and had been induced and that didn't work and then they reinduced me and then that did work and it worked far too well and I went into um a sort of uterine hyperstimulation and it ended or culminated in an emergency c-section and when I reflect back on that time I just remember feeling that I didn't get the birth that I wanted and I really struggled with how my body looked after afterwards. And I don't think many women talk about that very much. And also just the lack of choice that I felt I had in it all. And I even remember feeling like I hadn't given birth like the right way. Mm-hmm. And I subsequently worked with women who say that to me. And I know, you know, when I when I hear them say it, I know how illogical and irrational that is. But I, I remember feeling that. So yeah, just like, what were your observations of me sort of postpartum at that time? Um, uh, you weren't in a great place, no. <laughs> um, I think after your experience, you were just really quite determined that things had to be right. Um, so anytime I came to visit, it was, let me make you a cup of tea. Let me, well, I go and change Ella's bum or, you know, let me do the dishes and everything. And the answer was, I can do it. Yeah. I can do that. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, well, I know you can but I'm here to help. And you, you, you found it really difficult to accept any help. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that was very much down to this disappointment that you felt over how your birth had gone. And, you know, I think that's why now, having been through everything I've been through, I'm such an advocate for science-based hypnobirthing mm-hmm. because it trains you to accept that every birth can be calm and in control no matter how your birth goes. Yeah. So it's very much this belief that, you know, if you end up with an emergency C-section, you still have choice and how you can like pass that choice over to your caregivers and, and things like that. And I just think it would be such, an, such a good skill for all mothers to be taught before deliveries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting you talking about hypnobirthing because I was doing all the hypnobirthing stuff and, you know, um, obviously 
I'm a psychologist and I'm like yes yes I'm doing all my sort of meditative mm-hmm. stuff like trying to prepare myself but it just didn't then really cut it when it when it came to like the crisis of it all mm-hmm. um, but the other part of that for me is something around like when you are going through your um, pregnancy experience someone sits you down and is like right do your birth plan and like I'm like oh yeah I'm all over that like give me the birth plan I'll, I'll do the plan I'll have some structure but actually I hadn't really given myself the space like and if this doesn't work and I sort of knew like it might not but like mm-hmm. I hadn't really given myself the flexibility or the space and I think that's one of the issues that we have is we talk about birth plans a lot but we don't talk about the flexibility within that and how how you can bring the hip and the birth in or whatever it is that you want mm-hmm. and things like that. so yeah yeah um and you know I think uh you've mentioned like my inability to ask for help and I think that's still a work in progress <laughs> yes that would agree <laughs> okay right off off me now we're going to come back on to you so you, you've mentioned about the secondary infertility that you experience could yeah. you then reflect on what that meant for you in terms of moving forward into your experience of IVF and the process of that and what was difficult about that psychologically um, so when Cameron was around one, we decided that we would start trying for another baby. Bearing in mind at this point, we didn't know any of the stuff that had gone on internally. Um, so off we went and um, nothing happened. And we had conceived fairly easily with Cameron. So, do you know, as those who have experienced infertility will understand, or even people who when they first start trying you get that anxiety over that first it doesn't oh why is it not happening it's not happened yet um but for us it was just going on and on and on um so we it, we went down the route of looking into the IVF um, if I'm honest I feel we entered into IVF a bit blind really um as we already had a child we weren't eligible for any funding so it was all on us financially um, I hadn't done a massive amount of research initially and our first cycle was done quite rushed um, we, because we found out the clinic was closing. <laughs> so we literally had um, an email that said, if you want to start, you need to start on your next cycle, which gave us a month's heads up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've dived right in and the first cycle they did ICSI, which is where they inject the sperm into the egg rather than leaving them to their own devices in the dish. Mm-hmm. Um, IVF, I have discovered, is a whole world of new acronyms. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. <laughs> um, so ultimately, it wasn't a successful cycle for us. Uh, we only got uh, one embryo and it didn't implant. Um, I still remember that intense feeling of loss and guilt. Guilty that we had wasted so much money mm-hmm. on this and it was for nothing guilty that my body had failed me, um, a profound sense of loss for what could have been. Um, And I think that's the thing with IVF. It's the constant turmoil. It's not just um, the ups and the downs, but it's the intensity of it in such a short space of time. Mm -hmm. So it's, and I, I also feel it's a funny place when you have secondary infertility because you don't feel like you fit in with those who are going through it for the first time to an extent because there's a guilt that you feel you should just be grateful for what you have. Um, And that's hard 
because although you are incredibly grateful, it doesn't make the desire any less. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't make that feeling go away. Um, so the honest truth is it's just pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. So we subsequently went through another cycle about 18 months later where Ross and I had agreed that was, that was going to be our last go um, mm-hmm. after our first cycle hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. And I threw everything at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did exercises, diets, I um, supplements, acupuncture, you name it, I did it. Um, but from a mental perspective, that's what I needed to do. Because after that embryo transfer, I felt very at peace in that I thought, do you know what, if this doesn't work, I'm, I'm happy that I've done everything I could have. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and, but for us, thankfully it did work. And after five and a half years of trying, um, it was successful for us. Mm-hmm. Um, that was our second full cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I've always been very open, as you know, I've always been very open with a lot of people about our fertility uh, struggles. And I've I tried to support others going through it as well now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there should be any shame surrounding fertility. Mm-hmm. I think silence breeds shame and shame breeds isolation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you need your village around you Yeah. when it comes to fertility. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. Yeah, and look, I mean, there's so much to unpack within that in terms of like, you know, loss and it's difficult, right? Because it's a loss of something that you've never really had, Mm -hmm. but it's it's present anyway. And then the other part is like, that really feels hugely important is a sense of like, when it's secondary infertility, it's even harder because there's a sense of like, I don't belong in the camp of people with no children, Mm-hmm. and so where where do you fit and I guess you would have found some of your tribe within fertility groups and mm-hmm. pieces um yeah just just so much to to go through and also the physicality like the the struggle on your body and feeling yeah. like you do all the things to make sure that you've done enough you know yeah. and that that feels like it comes from a place of like if I've not done all these things, then mm-hmm. I'm going to tell myself that I'm the failure. Yeah. And the whole, the process itself is exhausting. Do you know, it's early, early start. So like our clinic was always said, right, you come in for your early scan at between, before eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. So that's a 45 minute drive mm-hmm. for us before you even get to your scan. So that's childcare sorted out before you drive 45 minutes to be at an appointment before eight o'clock there's the stress on top of that because of the traffic and making sure you're going to be there on time and and that's for the day after day after day it's not you know you're in there for sometimes three to four appointments a week yeah, yeah. and I think so that process is just really intense sorry yeah, yeah. No, no. and I think you know, when I reflect on you speaking about it now and what you, what I remember of the time, like it just felt so invasive and exposing and mm-hmm. just, just an awful lot for you guys to go through. And thankfully it was successful um, and you had baby number two, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're going to come on and speak about, about this a little bit more. Um, but just moving on slightly, um, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about the sort of micro traumas and this idea that you, mm-hmm. when you, when we were speaking about this episode, we were thinking about all the things that you've gone through up to this point. 
and just realizing how much had been layered up on top one on top of the other and so just to give a bit of context to this question so people who listen to the podcast regularly will know that I lost my husband in June 2018 and at that time you were heavily pregnant with that baby that came from that successful um, IVF and I just remember you like agonizing about like being able to come to Matty's funeral and whether you were going to make it and all of that stuff and like I just wondered what it was like for you to be in that place of like going through such a difficult journey to having that baby and then all this stuff going on around about you with me and yeah just just what your reflections were. Um, So yeah I was 38 weeks pregnant and um, Matty's funeral was the day before my due date. Um, so I'd been contracting for a couple of days um, just before Matty died and on that day it all stopped <laughs> everything my body just shut down um, and I remember being so upset about potentially having the baby and not making the funeral um, which which to me that's the thought of not being there was unthinkable I had to be there and um I remember calculating out the windows of days before the last day I'd be able to have the baby and still make it. Um, And, uh, you know, all of a sudden there was this baby that was so wanted and so longed for and became attached to even more pain. Yeah. Which I I remember feeling really angry at myself for feeling that. um, Because... uh, I felt this what this isn't how it's meant to be yeah like this wasn't how it was supposed to go um and feeling angry and guilty for feeling that um yeah and I'm sure you I'm sure you did say to me at one point about how you were feeling about it and I was like are you kidding like you just need to do what you need to do and there was no expectation for me that you would be there or not be there you just needed to be healthy and baby to be healthy but it's just, you know, thinking about not only like, so I don't think I've ever heard you say it like that, that your body just like shut down and that mm-hmm. you contracting and that that was the impact of like that trauma on you, right? Yeah. And and this yeah. is the thing about these big life experiences, like the ripple effects, obviously I, me and my kids were the ones who were mostly affected and then the ripple goes out and further out and further out. And you guys were obviously really present for me in those days after and but that at a cost right there was a cost to that yeah 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 um gosh yeah it's it's just interesting hearing you speak about that so Mm -hmm. but you know you you then went on no no go for it tell me yeah no something just popped into my mind there and it was you know what I know there was a lot of people really worried about me around that time and it was really I I've completely I've completely forgotten about that aspect until you mentioned something there and yeah. like my husband Ross was on that morning he wouldn't let me drive yeah like because he was like no you you can't drive you can't yeah. drive you're thirty yeah. weeks pregnant and you're really distressed you're, I'm taking you and he drove me everywhere for about two weeks because <laughs> he was like you're not driving <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely um and of course I guess just as I'm sat here thinking about this like I would have obviously been in my own ball Mm -hmm. Um, and so it would have been difficult for me to like be present for you in those moments 
Um, and it's just it's just interesting. We've never really spoken about that. No, no, we haven't. No. Um, okay, but you you then went on and you had um, little Isabel, and um, then just a few <laughs> short months later. Um, it's unbelievable actually when I think about the timeline of all of this Mm -hmm. but just a few short months later another massive life event then happened and just to give a bit of context to this so it was the day of Izzy's christening and I was really proud you'd asked me to be her godmother and I remember that being a really big deal for me because I was also like not really you know I was still in the throes of all my grief and all of that kind of stuff but I remember being back at the place afterwards and holding her and she ended up falling asleep in my arms. And for people who are listening, Isabel is an absolute joy and wild as the heather. <laughs> and I remember you or I or both of us kind of saying, that's a bit weird. Like, And she'd been a bit unwell and you knew that she was a bit under the weather, but it just felt really like this is not like her to fall asleep in, in your arms like that. So I'm going to pass over to you. Tell us what happened after that point. Uh, so yeah, um, she was four and a half months old and like you said, she hadn't been great for a couple of days, but there was nothing in particular, I couldn't put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. And as most mums will know, you know, kids are up and down all the time. Yeah. Um, but the night before the christening, she had been, I'd been up all night with her and she'd had a fever and um, she just really unsettled. But as this was pre-COVID times and um, we could do things with fevers, um, we, the christening went ahead. Mm-hmm. And... Like you said, I remember people saying to me, oh, she's such a good baby. She's just lying there, so peaceful. And I remember thinking, no, that's not her. There was something just not right. Um, So like you said, I kind of went to the the after party and she she started to burn up. Um, She's quite a high fever. So I took her home, I gave her some Calpol and we both went to bed as we were knackered from the night before. Yeah. as the even, evening and the night wore on, she became more and more unsettled um, and her fever stopped responding to the calpol. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and about 1am she woke screaming and her temperature was through the roof. And so we tried to give her some ibuprofen mm-hmm. and she just started vomiting everywhere. And so we phoned NHS 24 who asked us to take her up to St John's, which was our local hospital. And I think within about five minutes of being there, they had called a blue light ambulance for us and took us to the sick kids hospital uh, through in Edinburgh. Um, They thought at that point she had sepsis and potentially meningitis. And we, um, so she was admitted into one of the wards there. And I spent the next three days by her side and been asked not to hold her because she was too hot, her temperature was too high. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't get her temperature down. Her heart rate was through the roof. She was on three different IV antibiotics, which were making no difference. Her tiny wee veins kept collapsing, so she was having a new cannula fitted almost every day. She had blood tests, lumbar punctures, and no answers as to why my baby was getting sicker and sicker. Um, then on day five of this, she woke up with bloodshot eyes, a rash, a swollen gland on one side of her neck. Um, she had a characteristic strawberry tongue. Mm. She was irritable. She still had this high fever, wasn't responding to medication, and she was finally diagnosed with Kawasaki disease. Yeah. So for many people listening, they will say, so what? 
Mm -hmm. um, I had actually heard of Kawasaki disease um, before this, a matter of months before, because a good friend of mine had actually, her boy had had it and I had never heard of it before then. It's relatively rare. Um, and what it is, is uh, it's an autoimmune response from the body to something which as yet is, is unknown, potentially a virus. Yeah. But it's the leading cause of acquired heart disease in kids. So this is out there, it's rare, and people should know about it. Yeah. Um, but it basically causes the major vessels in the body to swell, particularly around the heart, and it can cause major heart damage and death. Mm -hmm. um, so we were faced with this, and my tiny baby was really, really sick. This baby, And I just remember thinking to myself, how unfair is this? Like, yeah. after everything we've been through, now we're faced with this and um thankfully we were in the lucky group if you want to call it that and that if Kawasaki disease is caught early enough they can treat it mm -hmm. so she was treated with uh, immunoglobulins they treat it with and um she was monitored for a year and thankfully she was given it all clear in it would have been around February 2020 um so yeah that was us running up to COVID <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, I came in um, and visited you um, across those three days and I, like, I just remember how fearful I was <laughs> of, like, what could happen, what potentially uh -huh. And I think at that stage, they still weren't clear. Like, when I had come in, they didn't know what it was and that I think that was the worst of it, you know, that <laughs> uncertainty over what was going on and yeah she was just it was su such a difficult thing to watch you going through that mm -hmm. and just reflecting on it again as your friend and and seeing you in that position at that point you were just coping you're just getting on doing it everything's you know and again you know you're laughing at the start saying I'm fine I'm fine and you were very much in that place of nope I'm just keeping on going mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna break I'm not gonna show how difficult this is I just need to get through it yeah Mm -hmm. I very much felt that was, of all the things that had happened to that point, that was definitely a, a significant point. It was um, incredibly difficult and I very much was coping mm -hmm. um, I, because I had to. I was still breastfeeding. Um, so I was there. I couldn't, no one else could be there. It had to be me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I don't think I slept for three or four days. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember my mum coming in and saying you need to go and just have a cup of tea or something and she sent me away and they had like a like a flat or something that you can kind of go and just like shower and have a cup of tea and things and I'd gone up there and I'd showered and I'd sat down on a couch to respond to a text message and I must have fallen asleep like mm -hmm. text, and I woke up to my phone ringing and it was my mum and of course panicked and answered the phone and I was like, it's okay, it's okay. I'm just checking you're all right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm falling asleep, I'm falling asleep. She's like, it's that's okay. Do you know, you need to sleep. Um, yeah. But yeah, just complete, complete wipeout. Like, yeah, so exhausted. And, you know, it, I mean, thankfully, Isabel's okay. Not every child gets out of it the same way. Um, and as you say, like, you know, kids can develop acquired heart disease after something like that. But it's interesting, once you know about it, like I've seen another couple of people, um, people who have followed on social media whose kids have been through it. Um, and yeah. I've actually, like, 
um, was in touch with someone recently and had said to them, they were talking about their kid being sick and I almost messaged them to say have they looked at this and Uh I didn't I didn't because I I didn't know her so well that I felt that was appropriate Mm -hmm. it then transpired it was Kawasaki and her partner had mentioned it to the doctors and that's how it was found and you know I think awareness is so important and I know every year that memory comes up and you post it and talk Mm -hmm. about it and I think it's so important that people educate themselves if they've got kids on this because not even lots of doctors see it you know no no absolutely it is really quite I don't like to use the word rare because it's not rare mm-hmm. um, but it's not seen very often yeah. um, and unfortunately one of the pushes from um, the Kawasaki society is just know the signs and ask could this be Kawasaki yeah. it's better to be able to rule it out and say it's not than to not ask absolutely no for sure for sure and Isabella's still well as the heather and uh, <laughs> yeah she's uh, she's amazing um, okay okay so m- moving on to the next part of the story I guess um, and your IVF journey so you and your husband Ross then decided to go on and have one last try at IVF and my sense of that at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, was you were like, like, it'll never work. It's, it's fine. We'll, we'll give it a go. <laughs> and then you fell pregnant. And then when you were 10 weeks into that pregnancy. Yeah. And fast forward to just a few weeks before you were due to give birth. And I... I'm not quite sure like I remember you confided in me that actually things were not actually okay so on the face of it you were fine um you were projecting I was fine <laughs> I'm fine everything's okay and I'm coping and actually you then confided in me what was going on internally and you described it to me as we were prepping up for this podcast as like a proper crisis point and I remember knowing that myself mm-hmm. when I was speaking with you can you just say a little bit about what you experienced um how you knew it was time that like things had got ahead and how you got support to get yourself through that um yeah um it was a very difficult time um I remember initially when I fell pregnant with Ruri um and waking in a few weeks in literally a matter of weeks um in the middle of the night in intense panic um, and crying and thinking it was this realization um, that I knew how this was going to end and I had this overwhelming feeling that something awful awful was going to happen mm-hmm. um, and I, I put it down to me at that point I was like this whole IVF process for Rudy has been too easy everything's been a battle till this point and this was too easy mm-hmm. um, and something has to go wrong mm-hmm. and what was going to go wrong was that I was going to die mm-hmm. while I had this baby and um, having had two births Isabel's birth as well as hemorrhaged with both and particularly as Izzy's was worse and I had passed out during the delivery and it had been really quite traumatic so I think that was probably in the back burner of this as well um, but for those first maybe up to probably six eight weeks uh, I remember crying myself to sleep most nights um, because that was uh, just this overwhelming doom feeling of doom really 
Um, and then, of course, I never, never told anyone, you know me. Yeah. Um, shut it away, shut it away, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, Ross kind of cottoned on that there was something not quite right. Um, and he, but he, if I'm honest, he didn't really know how to help me because I didn't really know what I needed myself yeah, yeah. at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so then COVID happened. And like I said, it was 10 weeks. <clears throat> and so there we were at home, isolated. I was homeschooling my nine-year-old mm-hmm. and dealing with a toddler mm-hmm. and this ever-increasing feeling that something's going to go dreadfully wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to speak to my midwife on a few occasions and to be honest she never really took me on I, I was kind of concerned over the management of future hemorrhaging and what, how that would be dealt with and she just kept on saying well it'll just be dealt with you know and I, she wasn't kind of grasping on that I was having serious psychological issues here um but then I think things hit what I describe as the crisis I don't even really know what you professionally would call it um but when I was about 35 weeks and our golden retriever Maxi died really quite suddenly Mm. and I just felt things spiralled out of control and there was this and I couldn't stop crying but it wasn't a normal grief reaction and I knew that that myself that this was different Um, and I I started googling (laughs) how to do and um, I thought maybe I had prenatal depression, which mm-hmm. again I didn't even know was a thing at that point. But I thought, well, this it feel I feel depressed. I feel like mm-hmm. that's what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, I basically shut myself away. I stopped answering anyone's calls. I didn't want to speak to anyone. And you turned up at my door one day, and yep. I mean, you pretty much forced your way in. <laughs> pretty much did I do you know my memory of it's gone slightly hazy but I feel like Ross had confided in me that he was worried about you and didn't know what to do and then then Maxie died and I remember I mean I'm not even sure I was supposed to be like anywhere near anyone's house I can't really remember like I'm sure I wasn't I think my sister had phoned you as well actually and said she was concerned but yeah I think you basically turned up at the door and I was like you can't come in and you were like I'm coming in there's something really wrong um, yeah, yeah, and I, we sat at opposite sides of the living room. That's right, and I, um, I remember, like really wanting to hug you and really wanting to, you know, comfort you, but also knowing, you know, all of the context of it. But like that conversation, I think you just, um, everything that you'd been suppressing and pushing down and holding on to, all just kind of came out in that conversation. And you know, I remember speaking to you about, well, if you're worried about hemorrhaging, you should know the plan. Mm-hmm. And if you are thinking that you're going to die and having thoughts that you're going to die, well, you can't go into your birth like that because it's just going to traumatize you even further if you've not thought yeah. that. Yeah. And yeah. so at that time, so I left, I didn't leave that house until we had a plan in place and I knew that you were going to do some stuff. And so obviously it wouldn't have been appropriate for you to do any work with me, but I knew of somebody absolutely fantastic Um Gemma, who works for what's the name of Gemma's business? Uh, Gem Neelan at Birth Trauma Scotland. At Birth Trauma Scotland. So um, I'll give Gemma a nice wee shout out, and I'm going to put it in the show notes um, because she yeah. was just an absolute turning point for you um, yeah. when you got the support that you needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd never experienced anything like that in my life before. I've always kind of considered myself to have relatively good mental health. I've coped with things, and I've been able to kind of logically work through things. But that was um, next level. And basically, 
I felt I'd left it too late to do anything about it. But from that first contact with Gemma, she basically assured me that she could help. And within three sessions, she treated me for PTSD and tocophobia, which is an intense fear of childbirth, I now know. Um, and she used a variety of techniques, which ultimately dealt with my subconscious mind. Um, she prepared tracks for me for that coming birth. And um, yeah, she also worked with Ross and I on some science-based hypnobirthing, which works in my mind because I'm a science-based person. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, and I went on to have the most amazing, healing, uplifting birth with Ruri. And it was amazing, amazing which is so wonderful so grateful to her so grateful to her yeah so to come to the end of all of that you know and have have a positive experience is so is so amazing that you were able to do that after everything Uh and I think one of the things um just reflecting on some of that one of the things that I see in my clinical practice often um is that sort of cumulative effect of trauma and you know maybe one challenging life event comes along and initially we're doing okay um our coping reserves kick in and we've got that resilience to to be able to manage and deal with it but when more and more things happen that layer up on top particularly over a shorter period of time um it can become increasingly difficult to keep up and to keep control of everything and to feel like you know you're, you're coping so yeah like I guess we've kind of shared a little bit of your journey and to me it feels like there's so much between you know, this Cameron's difficult um, pregnancy, his birth, hemorrhage, like, and it just, you know, there were so many things layered up on top and on top. And then there was that squeeze towards the end of Matty's death, Isabel, mm-hmm. Kawasaki, Rue, all of it. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, did you realize, were you aware of that at the time? Like, were you aware of all these things layering up? Uh, no. <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest, I wasn't. Um, I hadn't appreciated how much all those things had affected me. But in hindsight, which we all know is a wonderful thing, um, there was there was lots of symptoms that I was experiencing. I was hypervigilant. I catastrophized everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but for me, it was probably more physical symptoms. So I had migraines, I had neck pain, I had joint pain. Um, and, I, you know, stress is so toxic on your body. And I think that was, for me, how it so and it just slightly crept up on me mm-hmm. um, and it definitely was a trigger or that that kind of pregnancy mm-hmm. and that kind of came definitely crept up yeah. um so but yeah I'm better than I've ever been and yeah feeling feeling good amazing and yeah so if anybody um is thinking that they could do with a bit of support um Gemma is fantastic um so yeah I'll I'll make sure that I include her details um now uh, last sort of question around this stuff before we move on to your new um venture but I think we shouldn't leave this episode without talking to um COVID and so you had Isabel and then you had a baby during COVID and so we were talking about you know what you potentially missed out on as a mum and also what the kids missed out on as you know I guess particularly Isabel in a way because she was a toddler and might have been going to baby mm-hmm. toddler groups at that point like what's your reflections on on how you had to live life with two small ones during Covid? Um, I think there 
I think mostly for Izzy, it was probably, like you said, the lack of social events. So, you know, there was no... Do you know how I look back on it? They closed the parks. Like, yeah. we weren't even allowed to go to the park. Yeah. Um, so, um, do you know, she's four and a half. She's just been invited to her first friend's birthday party. Wow. And she's over the moon about this. And But when I look back to, like, Cameron's experience, and, do you know, he was much, much younger when he was going to we friends birth parties at nursery and things like that but just you know, there's been so much delay on those kind of social events returning mm-hmm. um she never got to experience going to toddler groups or um even going on a train mm-hmm. you know or a bus or you know going to days out it just just never happened um she also didn't talk until she was over three um and I, I do put that down to partly because she lived with us and we're such a close-knit group of people who knew exactly what she wanted, but she didn't probably have to talk. And she was also, when she was out with the house, she was surrounded in people with masks. So yeah. she never saw anybody's mouth move. Um, so I think from that perspective, she really missed my mum. She really struggled with that lack of contact with my mum because my mum had been looking after her from about six months old when I was back to work, um, albeit part-time. Um, but yeah, she really missed that. Um, with Rudy, I think we're really starting to see some of the effects of that now like he hasn't really spent any time away from me because since he's been born we've been in this this pandemic situation so mm-hmm. um he's now starting to play group and he's struggling a bit with that so he's yeah as we lips you say tell me it's time for a play group and as we lips starts quipping yeah. and um wow. but he's, he's getting better every day's a wee bit better um yeah. so yeah but from a from a mum perspective I think I mean there were so many the hard parts to it. I mean delivery at a hospital was one you know there's things like I feel like missed out like the kids never got to come into the hospital to meet their new babies mm-hmm. Ross was so limited on the time you could spend there um you don't like ironically I am probably closer to a group of mums that I met online and um, local mums that I met online mm-hmm. than I am to probably any of the other groups of that I've met with the other ones and I think it's potentially because we felt we had to it was almost forced that you had to make an effort because there was no other way that you were going to kind of meet people mm-hmm. um so yeah it, it was a mix uh, a mixed experience we did we took away we did enjoy a lot of the time at home we've got a pretty busy life so it was kind of nice to have a slower pace and, and all be together um yeah, yeah. but yeah it was there's, so it was there's so much about the pandemic that i think we'll never really know till we're sort of generationally down the line and they're able to tell us about it you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what they experienced but it was just interesting to reflect on that and, and get a sense of what you felt during that time um okay right now this is the exciting bit <laughs> you have now i guess partly because of your experiences right partly yeah. because of what you've been through you are a physiotherapist and have been for many years but you have now stepped into the professional world of women's health and you've got an emphasis in your business on pregnancy and women's postpartum health among other things so yeah just keen to hear like why you've done this and why it's so important to you um so yeah after my birth with Rui I just had this overwhelming desire to help other women have a similar experience. Mm-hmm. And I felt frustrated with the lack of support and care postnatally for women. Mm-hmm. Um, I did consider retraining and doing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realized 
that could probably just help women with the skills I already had. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd been dabbling in women's health for a couple of years anyway, but I took the plunge, went all in, and it's honestly been one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, the community of support from women's health physios has been phenomenal. Um, and I, I don't know if it's because many of them have come to the speciality because of their own experiences. Mm-hmm. And so they're very welcoming and there's not a lot of us. So it's, it is a very inclusive community where people say, come, let us show me, I'll show you my skills, just come and join us. And mm-hmm. it's just a really exciting, lovely area to be working just now. Um, but yeah, the, the heart of it all, I just want to make a difference. Yeah. After everything I've experienced and I want people to have better Amazing. Amazing. And we, I mean, when you told me that you were going to do this, I was so excited um, because I just <laughs> such a, a, you know, an area that needs more, needs more like people like you who are sort of banging that drum around, around postpartum health, because I don't, you know, there's just not enough out there. Um, and, you know, we've had a couple of conversations where we're like, how is like, how has this not been spoken about more and how, you know, um, and I recently came and had a mummy MOT from you just around, you know, the physical things that happened to my body when I had twin boys who were seven pounds a piece and I'm just little. And, you know, there's so many areas and my body was one of the things that I really, really did struggle with um, sort of postpartum. And I think it's interesting because I don't think a lot of women really want to say that because you should just be grateful that you've got your babies and that you're fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's viewed as like that you're going to be, you know, thought of as vain or whatever if if you're concerned about your body. Um, but it was a really brilliant experience, and I would recommend if anybody's sort of worried about themselves postpartum or would like to get a bit of a check on certain things. So, like, do you want to say a little bit about the types of things that you would look at in the mummy MOT? Yeah, so we see a whole host of things. Obviously, the mummy MOT is um a comprehensive postnatal check so that would be like a one hour assessment and we can do do that from anything from six weeks for a vaginal delivery and eight weeks from a c-section delivery Mm -hmm. Um, and you're looking at everything from your dynamic movement and how you move how you walk down to um how your hips move how your pelvis moves how your back's moving we then can look at your diastasis um, so if you've got any tummy gaps and check on that for you there's an internal assessment which we can do to check how the pelvic floor is working and it's just a really full comprehensive look at as scars as well like you know perineal scars c-section scars so it's just it's down and it really it's a check that all women deserve really after they've had a baby yeah. um, and also, why, why did they not get like why have we not got this as standard in our health system like that's the bit that really you know riles me about it all yeah, in France they do. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's standard practice in France. Um, but yeah, and I, I feel you would, it's actually would be a cost saving measure, in my opinion, because so many women go on for this years and years and years and end up with prolapses and all these things, which then need surgical input. Whereas if they'd just been dealt with properly and supported postnatally, you maybe wouldn't have gone down that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, cover out a whole range of things. We also do menopause support and um, you know, support for prolapse and various things. So yeah, give me a shout. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Okay, right, last question. I do like to ask my guests this one. Um, okay, what do you know now about your own psychology that perhaps you learned across these experiences that you've been through? 
Um, so I think I have got better, I've learned better coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that I can see when things are maybe creeping up on me a little bit more mm-hmm. um, than I, and, and maybe the area at the time where I need to clear my head. And, you know, I still get overwhelmed. I've got three kids, two of whom are little and crazy, um, on top of opening my own business. And But I'm better at listening to my body um, and knowing the warning signs of when I need to practice some self-care. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I'm better at designating tasks to other family members, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and passing it on, realising that I don't need to do it all. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, so, yeah, so being able to ask for help. Um, yeah. And also what I'm hearing you tell me within that is somewhere along the line you've learned to link up mind and body and that you're not yeah. holding and suppressing and not paying attention to what your body's telling you about what's going on in your mind. Um, yeah, Okay, thank you so much for being here. I'm sure there's been so much value um, for listeners. And yeah, um, so everybody can check out Steph at the Physio Village. I'll put the business and the links to it in the show notes. And yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Know Your Own Psychology. If you loved it, please share it on Facebook or Instagram for your friends and family. And if you really want to help me out, drop a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, you can email me, hello at drlaurawilliams.com. And if you would like to know your own psychology better, influence all the areas of your life and achieve more meaning, freedom and purpose, come and join my growing community over on Facebook. Search Know Your Own Psychology and make a request.